0: portion of today's video is sponsored by Wink. Hello, my dudes. My name is Tiffany. Welcome back to my series, Internet Analysis, where I like to research and discuss things relevant to social issues and media. Today,
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals.
0: I want to talk about the reality TV to influencer pipeline. After such an intense last video, by the way, if you guys haven't seen it, my nearly hour long video about teeth and dental care, I really enjoyed the process of making that video, but it was a lot. I'm so glad that you guys seem to have enjoyed it. But for this week, I just wanted something a little more simple. It is summer, so of course, I am currently watching Love Island, UK. I wanted to specify that I've never seen the US or Australian versions of Love Island, and I thought that was it. But according to the Wikipedia about the franchise, there's like almost 20 other versions of the show in different countries, so this video is referring to the UK one. If you're not familiar, it's a dating competition show where a bunch of hot, sexy singles live together in a villa, they couple up, new people get brought in, some people get kicked out, relationships are tested, and the winning couple at the end gets a cash prize. Pretty classic. Anyway, as I've been watching this show for the last few seasons, every year I think the same thing. The real prize of being on Love Island is becoming an influencer. But I think that's actually true for like, almost all reality TV these days. Be on show, find love or win a prize, become an instant celebrity or influencer, then you get fame and fortune. But of course, it's not that easy. So again, in this video, I'm gonna focus mostly on Love Island UK because that is what has been filling up my brain lately. But a lot of my sources on these topics also mention The Bachelor, which is actually a franchise I have never watched. It's very much a reality TV to influencer pipeline though. A lot of these things also apply to recent hits like Too Hot to Handle, Love is Blind, etc. Obviously, the genre of reality TV is massive, so I'm not covering everything, it's not going to apply to everything, but if I miss anything related to your favorite reality show, let me know in the comments. I just find it so interesting to watch reality TV, get to know these quote-unquote regular people, but then also have the awareness that the second that they step out of that isolated environment, they're gonna have completely different lives. They're gonna be instant influencers, many of them at least. I just want to know more, you know, what are the highs and lows of this experience, and honestly. Is it all worth it? By the way, sorry if throughout this video you can hear any sort of banging upstairs. My neighbors are up to something. So first I want to get a little bit into the history of reality TV, early reality TV. It's obviously changed a lot since its inception. The show credited as the first reality TV show is called An American Family, from 1973, which focused on the Louds, a white affluent family in Santa Barbara, California. And it was considered revolutionary for its time, for its very raw documentary style. It was meant to expose this perfect looking family as not so perfect, which as we know today is like the premise of... So much reality TV. It was the 70s, so the most shocking storylines included that the parents were getting divorced and that their son Lance was gay. As one of the first openly gay figures on TV, he quickly became an icon in the community. But reality tv didn't really catch on for a few decades. In 1992, the real world premiered, and that definitely set the tone for a more dramatic situation, where you do have a combination of real average people, but they're put into situations that are very different than real life. Then, in the year 2000, Big Brother and Survivor premiered, so obviously those have been massive, very influential, very popular shows that are still on to this day. In 2003, we had The Simple Life, starring socialites Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie, who were essentially trying out what it was like to be poor and have to work difficult jobs. And on that note, Paris Hilton credits herself as the original influencer, of course. Capital O, capital I, original influencer. Girl boss life. Yeah. We can very much debate whether or not she deserves that title, but she definitely was an early adopter of this idea that you could market yourself in every different way and create an entire empire of products based on your brand and image. Either way, I think everyone has always known that being cast on a reality show, being on TV is a jumping off point for more, and if you're smart about it, you can figure out how to potentially capitalize off of that. Platform. The difference, obviously, with the rise of social media is that anyone in the spotlight through a reality show could then get their own social capital in the form of followers and a fan base, and they could market things directly to them. They didn't need the middleman of the traditional media opportunities. They could do sponsorships or they could sell their own products directly to their fans. Before we continue, let's give a shout out to today's sponsor, Wink. Wink is a wine subscription service that crafts wonderful wines and delivers them directly to your doorstep. You start by taking their one-minute quiz to get bottles mashed to your taste preferences and any other desires you have. Do you want your wines to be sustainably made? Vegan! Wink has you covered! My fiance and I do like to try a new wine once in a while, have a glass at dinner while we're watching a movie or something, or Love Island, to be honest. And this is a very convenient, affordable way to do so. Gonna do a little unboxing. I have this cider from California, I am a fan of ciders. And I'm a Californian. This is Golden Child. And this is the wine I've been drinking throughout this video, Cape Roots, Chenin, Chenin Blanc, I cannot be pronouncing that right. My French teachers are crying. This is a Pinot Noir from Chile, Alma Libre. Nathan's a huge fan of red, so I'm very excited to try this with him. And last we have this Fogland Riesling from Washington. I'm usually a white wine kind of gal. Also, with Wink, there are no membership fees, you can skip a month or cancel your subscription anytime, and they will replace any bottle that you don't absolutely love, so you can rest easy knowing you're gonna get some great wines. If you'd like to try out Wink, you can use my link in the description to get four bottles for $29.95, and that includes free shipping, the promo code is added automatically at checkout. Cheers! Santé! Now, I've gotta touch on the Kardashians, because I do see them as kind of emblematic of that transitional moment from early reality TV to the reality TV influencer pipeline moment. I've also never watched Keeping Up With The Kardashians, but through the osmosis of culture, I guess, I have absorbed a fair bit. So when it comes to the Kardashians, they were initially socialite adjacent, especially with Kim being like Paris Hilton's friend slash assistant. They also had a famous lawyer father, famous former Olympian parent, Caitlyn Jenner. They had wealth and access. So they were intriguing. And then with the legitimacy that came from being on TV, that brought their family brand to mainstream audiences. Then they utilized social media to increase their individual influence across a lot of different spheres, be it clothing, makeup, wellness, high fashion, fragrances, alcohol and they built business empires. This piece points out how each sister has a slightly different niche and different audience, but together, the entire clan appeals to a pretty wide demographic, which benefits everyone involved. Also, can we talk about how the Kardashian-Jenners pretty much had a content house? What do you call a group of influencers who more or less live together, create content together, always cross-promote to make the entire group more popular? When it comes to their influencing, years ago, they frequently posted a lot of pretty shameless, low-effort sponsored posts for sketchy products. On Instagram these days, they mostly promote their own brands, as well as each other's. It's a lot more rare for them to have outside sponsorships, but they still pop up occasionally, like that sketchy curated businesses giveaway thing. Though I think Scott Disick runs that, so he's part of the clan. And most annoyingly, they still don't properly disclose their ads. It is always unclear or not declared which companies they own or are invested in, versus the products that they're just being paid to promote. Anyway, I think Keeping Up With The Kardashians came at the right moment with the rise of social media and especially Instagram. The Kardashian-Jenners transcended the label of reality stars, even though that's where their mainstream fame originated. And now, they're not even often referred to as influencers, despite being some of the most followed people on various platforms. They've kind of just become this inescapable element of our media ecosystem, whether we like it or not. Anyway, let's continue to Love Island pre-show. It's important to talk about casting, you know, who gets this opportunity to begin with. The typical casting patterns, especially for dating shows in the US and the UK, are basically young, attractive, thin or muscular, majority white people. I found this clip of some Love Islanders from a previous season talking about whether or not Love Island might want to consider representing more diverse body types. You know, as much as as body diversity is important, yeah. and let's not shy away from that. It's actually about the characters and the types of people that are in yeah. there. Personality diversity is more important. than Yeah, absolutely. Audience. Because if we focus solely on body, we'd have wouldn't have necessarily a good show. We need to focus on people who have different careers and yeah, different characters, and personalities. From, yeah. yeah. Okay, because I, I guess there's an argument that. Uh, you can get personality alongside lots of different shapes and sizes. And like, mm. they, they do all look different I and think they do look all different. have different
1: body types. But the yeah. thing is, I think is, we have to remember it is a show about young people going into a villa, sitting by a pool, trying to couple up and the show was never to showcase diversity and-
0: It's just easy to put blame on a big show and moan and have these negativities. But there's a plus size model, I think, The girl in the red, is she plus size model? Or that was a big thing. Right, okay. And they ultimately said no. And they also kind of said like, oh, we do have a range of body types. It's like, no, you don't. You really don't at all. I don't know why I was surprised. I just thought, I feel like it's a pretty mainstream position to be like, yeah, we can always use more diversity, especially in body types. This is such a harmful thing. They could have talked about the pressures that the Love Island castmates feel to be in the best possible shape. You've gotta be fit, you've gotta be thin, you've gotta be muscular to feel comfortable in that show. But no, none of that conversation was had. They're like, nah, we're good. On Love Island UK, there's been a continuous problem. When it comes to diversity in reality TV casting, even in a cast of like a dozen people, it's common to see like five blonde, blue-eyed white women. And as someone with these features, I can say, frankly, It's boring, we've seen enough, we get it. And aside from being just less interesting than a cast with more range would be, it's a harmful practice and it perpetuates a very narrow, very white, standard of beauty. On almost every season, we have the same kind of trope appearing, and that is a beautiful, lovely, yet single Black woman, who for some reason isn't able to find that romantic connection with anyone. Samira, Yawande, this season we've had Rachel and Kaz. I haven't seen all the up-to-date episodes, by the way. I think I'm only on episode like 20-something, so not sure what's happened since. Regarding this issue, though, there have been really great commentary videos made about this, and obviously, Black women are the best source of commentary for this topic. So I'm about to show some clips from some great videos and I really highly recommend checking out those videos in their entirety.
1: Love Island UK does black women dirty almost every single season (laughs) and like we're not just gonna be focusing on racial preference like we're gonna be talking about the extremely questionable like production and screen time decisions made that kind of make their intentions slash like well their lack of like care towards their black female contestants Very clear. I mean if watching people line up to get chosen like solely based on their physical like appearance wasn't already extremely awkward. Love Island UK has only like six seasons. And for four out of those six seasons, the last person standing, unchosen, unpicked, has been a person of color, which is really like at the end of the day, just like a preview into what the rest of their season is about to look like, like for those people.
0: Throughout that entire season, Samira was the best friend. She was the shoulder to cry on, always making the black girl the secondary character, never like the main character. But are we surprised? The
1: black women are buff. (laughs) They know they're buff, otherwise why would they apply to go on Love Island? In the outside world, I'm pretty sure these girls have no problem getting guys and I'm sure they do experience a lot of pretty privilege. But now they come onto this show, this new smaller society, where the casting directors haven't done their job to make sure that the men that they put on there have preferences for all the girls they put on there and vice versa. And it's really sad and I question whether black girls should even go on Love Island at all. Um, that's a topic for another day, but... <sighs> I'm not even, like, actually bothered by, like, their racial preferences of the contestants themselves. but like, the producers know exactly, like, who is whose type and, like, what type this person likes and what type that person likes and, like, what they look for in a partner, like, what their past partners have
0: looked like. There's so much to be said about preferences in dating, especially in terms of race, colorism, and the culturally specific, intricate dynamics of dating within or outside of your race or community or religion. Those are massive topics that I can't get into in this video, but there are plenty of fantastic videos on these issues if you want to hear more. And P.S. there are many other races and ethnicities other than black or white in the UK that are also massively underrepresented on shows like these, so it's the tip of the iceberg. And similarly, we get to The Bachelor. There's been a long-running joke about how similar a lot of The Bachelor or Bachelorette casts look. If thou wishest to make it to the final rose ceremony, thou shalt have wavy ombre hair, and be a white woman named Lauren. Again, I've never watched The Bachelor franchise, but I've still heard many stories about their problems with casting, and the way the production often treats contestants of color, it took 25 seasons to cast the first Black Bachelor, Matt James, and 13 seasons for the first Black Bachelorette, Rachel Lindsay. That alone speaks volumes. Now, I don't expect these reality shows to be revolutionary. I think it would be pretty naive to expect that Love Island, of all things, is gonna be leading the charge for, like, social justice. Though, if it happened, I would love to see it. But again, being intentional and mindful with casting is the bare minimum. Ultimately, the casting all boils down to who is given the opportunity, who is given a platform, what types of peoples are represented, and what types are not. Let's get into preparing for the show and the cost of being on reality TV. On both shows, you want to dress to impress. You want to look your best. Some contestants have admitted to getting Botox, putting in extensions, and signing up for fancy gym memberships to prepare to be seen on national television. Most get highlights, haircut.
1: This episode is brought to you by Snapple.
0: lash extensions, spray tans, eyebrow shapings, facials, and manicures. And on The Bachelor, these women have to bring a massive wardrobe.
1: What is provided for you and what do you have to pay for? You pay for everything and nothing is provided for you. Like, it was crazy the the amount of money that I spent just to go into the show because you don't know how long you're going to last. You could either be home night one or you could be there for a solid nine weeks. And it's like, you got to think of rose ceremony dresses and heels and jewelry and these things aren't cheap. It's it's quite expensive. And
0: Yeah, do people go into debt for this stuff? Oh, I did. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how you don't, I mean... The wardrobe alone, according to previous contestants, can cost thousands of dollars. Years ago, women would talk about how they would borrow some dresses from friends, or just kind of pull what they have from their closet and just go on the show. But now, even before they go on the show, contestants are either reaching out themselves to brands, or getting reached out to, and they're getting PR clothes to go on the show. I think reaching out to brands before going on the show is very smart, do anything you can to save some money. But you would think that the show would just directly partner with certain brands to make this process a lot easier for the contestants. However, things are a little bit different on Love Island, of course the contestants do bring their own suitcases full of their own clothing, but there is a lot less wardrobe pressure because each season has a wardrobe sponsor for product placement. I Saw It First is the official sponsor of Love Island 2021. And by the way, the website is hilarious and scary because some of the pictures for the clothes are models or they've been modeled by the contestants, but also some are just blurry, candid shots that look like they're taken from like security footage because that's how Love Island is filmed. And it's just bizarre. But Love Island is definitely the perfect way to promote fast fashion looks, never wearing the same thing. Bikinis, little two-piece sets, dresses because each contestant changes their outfit like three or four times a day. Another big financial consideration when going on a reality show is that you have to leave your life for potentially months. You have to be able to quit your job, Or if you have a very nice employer that'll let you leave for that long, but it's unlikely, still somehow get your rent paid, and obviously this isn't the easiest for anyone who's a parent or has other dependents. And it's important to note that contestants are not paid, so they have to do all of this, they have to essentially gamble on this opportunity of being on the show, and just hope that it comes through. Finally, during the show, there's a big discussion about the right reasons, going on these shows for the right reasons. Even though we all know that becoming famous is essentially an assumed result of being on reality TV these days. The cast members are all expected to pretend like this has nothing to do with their motivations to be on reality TV. Like on this season of Love Island, there was a moment where one of the guys left, and the girl he was coupled up with, he said something about this being a good opportunity for her. She should stay for the opportunities. And another islander got upset because she was like, it's not about the opportunities, it's about finding love. It's like, come on. This is a big discussion on The Bachelor and Bachelorette as well. A contestant's reasons are right only if they are on the show to fall in love with its lead and get married. Conversely, if at any time during filming a contestant lets slip that they went on The Bachelor because they wanted to travel or promote their tequila brand or expand their opportunities, they're decidedly labeled as not here for the right reasons. Finally, after the show, your season is done, you get let out of isolation, either the villa or The Bachelor world. For these types of shows, you don't have your phone, you can't contact the outside world, you don't keep up with the news. So the before and after is so much more stark. When you leave the show, obviously you have the chance to just go back to your regular job, go back to your life. You don't have to be an influencer, but the platform is kind of hand-delivered to you, depending on how well you did. The opportunities might be there, and you're only gonna get this one shot, so a lot of people feel compelled to take it. Why not try out this influencer thing? I do want to highlight, though, just because you are cast for a reality show does not mean that you are guaranteed to become rich and famous. You obviously have to last long enough in the show to give an impression to the fan base. And some people are very easily forgotten, if they're only around for a few days, or if they get very minimal screen time. And when you're coming out of the show, or as it's premiering, your reception greatly depends on how the production depicts you. This is reality TV, it is orchestrated, the producers are pulling the strings, trying to make things happen, trying to create a narrative. Were you lucky and you became a fan favorite? Were you one of the villains?
1: You see the public's reaction, they could proper hate you. I'm talking hate like death threats, it goes to a stage where it was just affecting my mental health way too much.
0: A lot of the former Islanders or Bachelor contestants talk about the lack of privacy and the media storm that you're immediately hit with.
1: Let's talk like, what have they got to expect as soon as they hit back, hit back in the UK? Oh, All the the memes, man. I think the whole fame thing made me less Confident. There was so much scrutiny on, like, how I looked, like, what I wore, what my hair was like, what my makeup was like. What these people say isn't a true reflection of who I am and how I look. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, you just got to watch out for them people to try to be your friends as soon as you come out. Everyone's your friend when you come out. Yeah, fucks. Just don't know who you can trust, um, especially when you, say,
0: like, when you say something to someone and you see it in the papers. Mm-hmm. The cons, I would say lack of privacy. At the beginning, it was so overwhelming. And I've kind of just realised now that everyone's going to have an opinion on everything you do. And the one thing I like to think about is that not everyone's going to love you. There's always going to be people that are just not a fan of you. Um, and that's OK.
1: Sometimes you can't really look into that too much because mm-hmm. I feel Take like personal. Yeah, yeah. they have a TV show to run so they're going to put certain narratives on certain people mm-hmm. but when you come out all of my advice to them is people are going to see their real character eventually yeah, yeah, yeah. after that For real.
0: again people often say well it goes with the territory you signed up to be on reality TV you knew what to expect but I still think that on an emotional psychological level it is still hard to accept the reality once you're experiencing it it's a very different thing to imagine being hated on or having trolls or whatever than it is to actually experience that. So now, the reality stars are into the influencer pipeline and I wanna touch on what makes reality stars, great influencers. When we meet someone via reality TV, we're meeting a version of them that has been heavily edited. It's been shaped by production. But when we see their social media, when they're out in the real world, we get to see their version of things. It's a closer, more intimate version. And it's obviously their edit, which of course we know can be more or less true. Nothing is real. (laughs) Nothing is real. Because of their vulnerability on the show, their followers really trust them, they value their recommendations, and they want to support them. And one question I had for this video was, what about the reverse? Because we've also seen the influencer-to-reality TV pipeline, and I think that is fascinating enough for its own video, but, you know, we've seen, like, Tana Mojo has her Tana turns 21, MTV thing. Nikita Dragon had a Snapchat show. Nikki and Gabby had a Snapchat show. The Demilio's have a new reality show. And I think coming from getting to know someone via their own lens, when we get the reverse, someone that we're used to seeing self edited and then placing them into a more formal, more produced setting, it usually doesn't translate. Again, we've already seen them, we've already seen more intimate looks into their lives, so why would we want something that's, in our eyes, less genuine than their social media? And in some cases, like Tana Mojo in Tana Turns 21, the way that they're depicted on their own show can make them less likable to their audience, to their fan base. Even though she was the protagonist of the show, her behavior was so terrible that everyone was like, to be honest, this is like, if there wasn't enough to turn you off of Tana, this is another strike. You lose control of shaping your own narrative and Tana had a whole thing like blaming the production, saying that all these things were, you know, fake or edited in a way to be misleading, but it's like, no, I mean, Editing can do so much, but also you have to behave in a certain way for them to be able to edit those scenarios. So unless they've got like a body double or CGI, it was you. Now let's get into the sponsored content. Obviously I am in favor of sponsorships. I think it's a great way to help content creators be supported, including myself. Thank you, Wink. So I'm not against sponsored content as a whole, obviously. To start, I spent way too many hours looking up each individual Love Island UK cast member's Instagram to see how many followers they had, and it was such a waste of time. Halfway through it, I was like, why? But anyway, out of that list, I then collected all of the islanders who have over 2 million Instagram followers, A lot of them have a few hundred thousand, maybe one million, somewhere in that range, but these are the top tier. And they're mostly, of course, winners or finalists, which is not surprising. In First By Far, we have Molly May with 5.8 million, and her partner, Tommy Fury, has 3.5 million, and then we have some others. Look at all that influence. And I did not check for the 2021 contestants because I don't wanna spoil things for myself. In terms of sponsorship deals for Love Islanders, they tend to get their biggest offers as soon as they leave the island or as soon as the season ends. And brands, of course, typically want to work with the finalists the most because they expect them to be the most popular. So Molly Mae, the most followed islander, bagged a 500,000 pound deal with Pretty Little Thing and also became a brand ambassador. Then she was also a brand ambassador for Beauty Works, a company that specializes in hair extensions that Molly uses that Molly uses (laughs) and hair tools. So everyone obviously finds their lane. Are you a beauty? Are you a lifestyle? Are you fitness? Are you fashion? Then we have Maura. She signed a six figure deal with Ann Summers, which is like a lingerie brand. And she also became a brand ambassador for Boohoo and has released a collection with them. this noise is really absurd. I hope you guys can't hear it, but it's a lot. Then Amber Gill, who won her season, signed a brand deal with Miss Pap for one million pounds after leaving the villa. That is the biggest Love Island payout deal that I've seen, and we love it for Amber. Here are some other deals with other islanders. Fast fashion, again, seems to be a major trend. On The Bachelor, there's a kind of running joke again about their FabFitFun sponsorships. I guess FabFitFun had originally worked with YouTubers, I remember, back in the day. And then they also got into bachelor contestants. And then on the men's side, obviously a lot of the guys also do these sponsorships. They do their fair share of influencing. I noticed while going through their profiles, a lot of them do coaching, which is always interesting because sometimes it's like a vague, like do you mean like a scam MLM type of coaching? Do you mean some sort of scheme? Like are you coaching people on how to be coaches? That's interesting. A lot of them also are like personal fitness sort of coaches as well, so they're doing their thing. They've got their niche. Then, other major opportunities include spin-offs and crossover appearances. This is kind of in that realm of becoming a television personality, so after you leave your season of a show, you can get featured in crossovers or spin-offs and stay part of the larger show's universe as long as you can, because obviously with every other show that you're on, other podcasts, other things, you have the potential to continue gaining more fans, more exposure. If you were a contestant on The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, obviously the next best thing after that would be to be cast as the next lead, but if not, there's the whole Bachelor universe to explore. Bachelor nation, (laughs) I don't know what that is, to be honest. For the Love Island cast, you could, again, same thing, be on podcasts, After Sun episodes, a lot of previous contestants also go on shows like Axe on the Beach or Celebs Go Dating, both of which I have not seen, but, I'll never say no. So yeah, the longer you stay in the universe, the more attention you can receive, and also you have the opportunity to direct your narrative. Keep your narrative alive, keep people caring about you, but also you have the opportunity to address past drama or relationship situations, and that kind of PR control can be very beneficial. Lately, we've also seen like Netflix universe crossovers. I compared this to the Jimmy Timmy Power Hour, iconic. Like when we saw Chloe from Too Hot to Handle get cast in The Circle, or we just saw Francesca from Too Hot to Handle get invited to the Love is Blind reunion party. Netflix is clearly onto something they want us to be invested in their reality stars, and I think a big way to do that is to bring them into these other universes. It's funny, because in reality TV, clearly, like, it's all the world, Wow. Unlike Jimmy Neutron and Timmy Turner, who lived in different universes, different planes of reality, we all exist in the world, but it still seems weird to be like, oh, that person's from that show, and that person's there, and they're sitting next to each other in the same room. Doesn't seem like it should add up. And now moving into a darker side of this pipeline, I want to discuss mental health and the lack of aftercare, the exploitation and the harm that can come from being on reality TV. Often, the drama in these shows is what gets people invested, the negativity, the twists, the villains, but these storylines, these narratives can be very harmful and exploitative to the contestants that are placed into those roles and edited in those ways. In a lot of these interviews, the previous contestants talked about how to cope after the show and dealing with the fame and everything that comes along with it. And I think how you can cope hugely depends on how you were treated, how you were portrayed how the audience responds to you, and then of course, you know, what is your support system like in your personal life? What is your mental state? What existing stressors do you have? There's a big difference if you were a beloved fan favorite, or if you were the villain of the season. And also in this pipeline, we hear a lot about this rush of media and PR and opportunities right after your season ends, But a lot of contestants have said that after a period of six months or a year, those opportunities start to dry up. You know, they start moving and focusing on the next upcoming season, the new cast. And that can make people feel kind of lost. You've accepted this new part of your identity as somebody who is famous to some extent. You've gotten used to this lifestyle and then it slows down and you wonder if it may be taken away from you. And then where do you go from there? Be like, I always have to be doing something. you'll do one thing or one huge collab and then you go to an interview
1: and the next question is, what's next? And you're just sitting there like, well, I don't know, I I just, there's so much pressure.
0: Next, I'm gonna read a bit from this piece by Madeleine Barbier, who I don't think is French, but love the name. And I wanna give a content warning for self-harm and suicide. So if you would like to skip this section, please skip to this timestamp. When we talk about aftercare, that is referring to It's not just aftercare, it's, like, before, during, and after the show, you know, the psychological examinations that are done on the cast to ensure that they're in a stable enough place to be on reality TV, because there's a lot of stress that comes along with it. And then, you know, during the show, are they being checked up on, are they being helped? And after the show, aftercare typically involves therapy. And also, I think aftercare often includes some, like, business advising, because, of course. Some of these people might be taken advantage of because they're being thrown into this very competitive business. But historically, aftercare was not a massive priority for shows like Love Island or The Bachelor, and that did cause a lot of harm and a lot of stress, especially to the early contestants who were kind of left without any direction or any substantial assistance. Two of Love Island's former contestants have died by suicide since appearing on the show, Sophie from the second season, and Mike from the third season. Sophie was the oldest contestant on her season, a model and former beauty queen. Mike was one of the villains of season three, sent in to stir the pot. It's important to note that nobody has directly blamed these shows for the deaths of these contestants, and also from Love Island's former host, Carolyn Flack, but it could have, of course, been a contributing factor. All of the stress from the show and the aftermath of the show could have contributed to any of their existing problems or their mental state, so that's just to be noted. Across the entire genre, 38 former reality TV stars have ended their lives. Many discourses that surround this issue focus on the shows themselves and the producers' failings to provide aftercare. Other conversations concentrate on the intense trolling that happens to reality stars over social media. Still others point toward the tabloids and their invasive articles.
1: How much of an effect can this show have on your mental health? Oh, it can have a massive effect on your mental health. Like seriously, because for people like us as well, Mm -hmm. young black men, we don't really talk about that too often. So I feel like it's something that we really got to push Nothing can really prepare you for what you're going into. It's sort of telling somebody the water's freezing, jump into it. They're never going to know how cold that water is until they... In the water. I think for me it took me about 6 to 12 months to fully adjust to this new lifestyle so I feel that if I was forced to probably see a psychologist every month I could benefit on probably speaking about my anxieties and my worries and work through them with her because a lot of people who are suffering from anxiety and mental health are the people who don't actually talk about it willingly.
0: There's a special precariousness that happens when these reality stars become influencers, marketing themselves through social media Media and thus increasing their value as a product. These stars experience a type of fame where their personhood gets commodified. Many have spoken about how strange and overwhelming their lives became post-production. Contestants are regularly written about in tabloids, their images and personal dramas widely dispersed. So with that, my final section is, Is it all worth it?
1: I really want you to know what you're getting into because Love Island is not the only way to do whatever it is you're trying to do, whether that's find love. There are other ways to find love. There are other less invasive ways, less stressful ways to find love. If you're trying to get a bag, there are other ways to do that too. So I really want you to think about it. I just really, really want to push the point that everything is not as it seems. It's, it's, It's mad. It's mad. I don't know. Sometimes I just think to myself, was it worth it?
0: One thing that comes with this is a lot of the stresses that come with being an influencer in general. And I've made, plenty of videos about that recently you know the questions of longevity and you know how can you build something more sustainable how can you build a career instead of just you know a couple of years of doing sponsored posts and also questioning if this is something that you want to do long term if you want to continue being a public figure with everything that comes along with that or do you want to just take the opportunities as they come ride it out make your money and leave when you're over it A lot of the interesting articles I read about this talked about the alienation that you experience as a reality star and also as an influencer and also the commodification of yourself, your persona. Barbier's article continues, even though many reality stars may be able to make a living off of simply posting their leisure activities, being an influencer is still labor and it is often all-encompassing labor. An influencer's whole personhood and identity collides with the fact that they are products themselves. A reality star who becomes an influencer might find it extremely difficult to divorce their own personhood from their labor, seeing that their personhood, or the image of their personhood, is how they're making money. According to the Invisible Committee, people whose value fully coincides with what they are become the new heroes of capitalism. This description certainly applies to reality stars and influencers. The overall effect of this commodification plays out differently in every individual, and some are perhaps more well-equipped to deal with the scrutiny than others. Perhaps others are less able to consolidate the monetized self with the other self, the healing, growing, imperfect, unquantifiable self. And this idea of commodification of the self brought me back to Paris Hilton, our resident girl boss. Hilton says she flies something like 250 days out of the year for work, and aside from the massive environmental impact of that, that just sounds exhausting. In her Paris documentary, one of the things she mentions is that it's her goal to make a billion dollars. Get it, girl boss. She talks about her rigorous schedule. She's always working, she's always working on the next project, she's always promoting something. And in her, you know, small amount of spare time, she books her DJ sets and she makes more money. Her life is all about making money, selling her brand, selling her image, creating more products to sell to her fan base. Paris Hilton is so synonymous with her brands and her products and this carefully constructed image that she has talked about is to an extent a character, this dumb ditzy blonde that's hot every element of herself has been commodified to the extent that she said she only recently started to figure out who she actually is as a person. So again, is it worth it to pursue being an influencer and commodifying yourself to this extent? All of the downsides have been pointed out, but again, we live under capitalism, and I understand despite the downsides why the potential financial benefits can make this endeavor seem worth it. I certainly have my conflicts about being a YouTuber and the fact that, ultimately, my content is created for money. This is my job, this is how I earn a living, and that does interfere with my creative process. I can't make art for art's sake. I have to consider the business side of it. I have to consider that I am selling a commodified version of myself, or my thoughts, or whatever. And I work with sponsors, because they pay me, like, the bulk of my earnings. Currently I've been in this headspace of, okay, I wanna work hard while I can, while I have this opportunity. I wanna save money, and hopefully build myself a bit of a nest egg, some retirement savings, maybe a down payment for a home. And if I can succeed in that, then maybe it makes, you know, all the other stresses and stuff worth it. Again, not saying that being a YouTuber is the hardest job, it is not. but. I do deal personally with a lot of emotional and mental stresses in this role, but even if I succeed in, you know, saving as much money as I can, still living in the U.S. because of our lack of a social safety net, most of us, no matter how much money we're able to scrape up and save, are still like one medical emergency away from bankruptcy. Cheers to that. Giving myself an existential crisis, one video at a time. Thank you, wink. You can click the link in the description to get four bottles for $29.95, and of course, shipping is free. The promo will be automatically applied at checkout. Now I get to give my small channel shoutouts. Finally, I'm sorry it's been a long time. So today's first small channel shoutout goes to Town of Tawia. Her name is Aquia Daniela and she does videos on film and social commentary. Perfect timing for this video, but her last two videos are about Too Hot to Handle season two. She specifically highlighted how Melinda, as a contestant, had an incredible experience on the show, was well loved, was one of the brightest personalities. She has a lot of other really wonderful video essays focusing on black media, including issues like colorism, the Oreo myth. The next one I'm gonna watch is, should black British actors leave African-American roles. So I know you guys will enjoy her channel, check out Town of Tawia. My next shout-out goes to a channel called Kaylin Conrad. I found their channel a few months ago, and immediately I was blown away by the editing. It is so impressive, I love all the green-screening, the soundtracks, and this is a leftist video essay channel, so of course, that's what I love. Their video on landlords was incredible, their series on anti-vaxxers. Overall, very high quality and very funny, so check them out. Also wanna give a shout out to my friend Sheridan, who helped me research this video, thank you so much. And in a moment, I will be thanking my patrons, including this name that I still can't pronounce because it's not a word. Charlie B. Kieran Janey, Mayweather Jaden, Marty Schmeichel, Abby Hayden and Rebecca DeVilliers. Our friends got us these little cups for our engagement. Let's crack this one open. Totally. <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. It's okay. Cheers. Thank you guys so very much for supporting me. If you'd like to check out my Patreon and all the benefits that are on there, you can do that. Thank you so much for watching this video, and I will see you next time. Okay, thanks. Bye.